someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, broadcasting on AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. To connect with us online, visit our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com. On Facebook and Twitter, at CyberSecRadio. My personal Twitter account is at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. And by email, Radio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. Also, if you're interested in our podcasts, uh, we podcast all versions of the show and may put in uh, little snippets of extra material in from time to time. Just use whatever podcasting software you like and look for Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek and you will find us. So let's go ahead and get right into it. A lot of big news covering this week uh, and we'll, we'll start talking about Russia, the story that just won't die uh, of the election related interference uh, that took place in 2016. Uh, certainly the president talked more about that this week uh, and evidence that uh, Donald Trump Jr. had a meeting with a, a Russian attorney. But we'll focus more on some of the technical aspects and cybersecurity aspects than the story at large. Uh, earlier this week, there's an article in Vox. Russia's hacking campaign revealed the sophisticated understanding of U.S. politics uh, by Matthew Iglesias. Uh, stated a lot of things that, quite frankly, aren't true and are full of crap. So, uh, but we can go through a couple of things. Talked about the Democratic primary, not personal, very issue-driven. Uh, things were more prone to compromise. Well, that's quite revisionist, considering that, uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders was kicked out of the DNC's uh, use for data. They accused him of uh, stealing uh, Secretary Clinton's data or then-Secretary Clinton's data. Uh, so the, the primary was bitter and contentious. Uh, certainly things came to a head in the convention. Uh, they blame Russian sophistication of trying to derail the convention based on the fact that uh, they released some of the primary shenanigans that the DNC had pulled. I think like I said that that's quite revisionist and an example of people using the election interference story, what the Russians did, and spinning an interesting narrative. As somebody who directly investigated this, who interacted and investigated not only the breach but the individuals behind the breach, I didn't see any sophisticated political understanding. Uh, no real understanding of how the Electoral College worked, didn't know what a swing congressional district was, if it hit him in the face. Uh, they just used the standard Russian narrative of finding, you know, establishment uh, candidates engaged in corruption and malfeasance and released that piecemeal throughout the campaign. Certainly it, was, it had an impact. Uh, dominated many news cycles. It's dominating news cycles, even though it's July, nine months after the election. 
But the fact of the matter is uh, that case doesn't really need to be overstated, and there is a fair amount of political spin going on. You know, it started in November saying the Russians hacked the election. They did not hack the election. They did hack the DNC. They did release materials. They did engage in propaganda operations, uh, and now it's still a little bit of spin uh, going on trying to find a narrative uh, that somehow uh, you know changes things. But the reality is uh, that does overstate it. Um, you know, they, they didn't really have a sophisticated political understanding. They didn't in France. Uh, they didn't seem to do anything in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I don't think they have a really good sophisticated political understanding in Germany either. Those things are very difficult to do from afar. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. So moving forward uh, on some of the other news going on this week, um, Another story about Russian hackers, again, uh, that they had penetrated energy and nuclear company business networks, uh, an article from the Washington Post. Uh, this isn't the first time uh, there's been reporting of this this sort. Um, again, uh, something to bear in mind, you know, a fair bit of hacking uh, and phishing, spam email and the like is happening all the time. Uh, power grids are certainly uh, areas of great concern. Uh, but in this case, uh, you know, the headlines are, are, you know, telling a story that's probably not as bad as it sounds, right? Uh, power companies, like any company, right, they have the critical machinery sitting, you know, inside a network somewhere else. But, you know, they have people checking Facebook, you know, office computers uh, doing what people do in offices, just like in any other company. And somebody, uh, you know, clicked on something stupid, you know, got an email got phone calls and the like of this routine uh, hacking uh, and hacking attempts that go on all the time, right? It's something to keep in mind uh, that it happens. Uh, the stakes are much higher in uh, nuclear plants and power facilities, of course. But these are the kind of things that you and I see in our emails, in our spam folders, uh, you know, things we see if we type over URL and get pop-ups saying, this is Microsoft tech support, call this phone number. There's a lot of crime going on online, uh, as you all know. Uh, a good deal of it emanates uh, from Eastern Europe and former Soviet bloc countries and the Russian Federation itself. Uh, and it's easy to uh, draw connections that may or may not be warranted. That being said, you know, things to be aware of. Always uh, scrutinize emails. Be careful of what you click on as far as attachments. You know, if somebody says, hey, um, this is your bank or your cell phone company or whatever. Click on this link or uh, reset your password. Always just mouse over it without clicking. See where the URL actually points. You know, if it goes to, you know, you know, yourbank.com, okay, maybe. Or just go to your your web browser, you know, type in yourbank.com or call the bank up. It's easy to get kind of out-of-band verification before doing sensitive things like moving money, changing passwords. And it goes back to something that I say often, right? The best cybersecurity defense we have is the person at the keyboard. Uh, we sell lots of technologies. Uh, there's an industry full of it. But really, it comes down to an individual at their keyboard taking a second to stop, think, uh, before connecting, look for signs of deception, 
you know, subtle misspellings, uh, you know, web links that go, you know, to Jimmy hates you.ru or something like that before acting, because only you can protect yourself. There really isn't anybody else out there to do it. So you need to protect your own cybersecurity for your company, for your, for your family and your kids. So uh, certainly something to be bear in mind. Uh, all of these stories sound scary, but they do have important lessons for us uh, of, you know, how uh, criminals will always uh, find ways to trick you to compromise yourself. Uh, you know, whether you're a plumber, HVAC contractor, or whether you're uh, just office staff at a power plant or a bank. Uh, again, also last item for this week, you know, renewed doubts about uh, whether the Russians were behind the election related hacking this past election cycle. Uh, the president, again, uh, expressing doubts upon that, as were several others. Uh, the story that just won't die. Uh, Cybersecurity wise, right, there are technical details uh, that we can point to. I was part of that investigation. Uh, of both the DNC and DCCC breaches, but there's a lot of other information that supports the same narrative. Captured phone calls from uh, Russian operatives, uh, a lot of other technical and non-technical details went into this conclusion. So uh, you may be able to haggle one piece of it, but the overall uh, totality of the evidence really strongly suggests Russia was involved in uh, chicanery uh, in the last cycle. Uh, People continue to cast doubts on it. But uh, the spin goes both ways as our political figures talk about this uh, and have their agendas uh, that they want to forward based on uh, what they can make the public believe. So uh, hopefully uh, we won't hear more of it, but I suspect we will. Uh, but we're going to take a short break here. We're going to move on talking about election cybersecurity. We're going to have on Greg Otto, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanak. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanak. And now, focus on government. My idea of a perfect government is one guy who sits in a small room at a desk, and the only thing he's allowed to decide is who to nuke. Government is the problem. Cybersecurity. There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, What do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, talked a little bit about the news and what's going on uh, in uh, cybersecurity news of the coming week. Uh, now going to switch, bring back our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. We have Greg Otto with us talking about uh, the Department of Homeland Security and what they're doing with uh, the cybersecurity of elections. How are you doing today, Greg? Doing well, John. Doing well. All right. So this week you had an article up talking about what DHS is doing to secure our elections uh, and uh, the continuing uh, attempt, I guess, uh, to label it as critical infrastructure. So break it down for us. Uh, what is what is Homeland Security trying to do here? So uh, 
In the past couple days, DHS, FBI, and the Election Assistance Commission have met to sort of move the plans forward to implement the designation of election systems as critical infrastructure. And they're starting to take meetings and put together a collaborative framework and roll it out to the states that, you know, has objectives around information sharing, collaboration, threat uh, analysis, risk analysis, mm -hmm. and making sure that states have appropriate, uh, appropriately updated their systems uh, uh, ahead of elections. Um, this is just, you know, a further continuation of the designation that DHS established on election systems in the run-up to last year's election. And mm -hmm. um, they, they are keeping the ball rolling even as states kind of press back on what DHS is asking for them. Well, and, and that was uh, one of the things that I was going to bring up. I think Georgia was notably the loudest about this, of explicitly not wanting any DHS assistance. But uh, uh, I know we've mentioned it a, a couple of times on this show and probably and talking to you about it. Uh, the United States is pretty unique that we have all of these independent election jurisdictions, that elections really aren't a federal matter, even when you're talking about the presidency. They're all state-managed, and all the states rely on local election officials, all who have their own independent authority. So uh, how do you see that working with all these uh, election officials saying, hey, wait a second, that's my job. Uh, I'm not going to uh, play nice in the sandbox with DHS. Well, I don't I, I think that the messaging needs to be a little bit different. I don't think that it needs to come across as, you know, the there's some type of federal overreach here. I mm -hmm. think the states are pretty much, you know, and DHS has said this, the states are pretty much up to themselves for the way that they want to protect their systems. However, I mean, you've seen this before. The the systems that go into these election systems, I mean, the cybersecurity apparatus that is there is not very good on a lot of them. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of them are using outdated windows, like a lot of other private sector um stuff is is still up on windows so you know the message needs to be from the federal government is look do what you need to do but understand that there is a baseline of security that you need to put in place mm -hmm. by the time that 2018 and 2020 it, you know it gets time for voters to go to the polls well, yeah, and I think you made a point. Yeah, there there have been some, uh, notably on the right, who are calling this the the federal takeover elections. That that certainly doesn't seem to be what's proposed here. Um, uh, but but yeah, there's a lot of archaic software out there uh, and uh, old operating systems. I mean, it has one minor advantage, at least in many places, that. The stuff is offline, not connected to the Internet, usually locked in a closet until election season rolls back around again, uh, which isn't complete protection. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's not unhelpful. But what can we really do? Uh, you know, these systems get used every other year. Uh, well, every year, depending on, on how states use elections, uh, many of these uh, jurisdictions don't have. Uh, huge budgets to work with. They certainly can't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on cybersecurity solutions uh, and, you know, may not even have uh, really highly trained IT staff. Uh, you know, what what do you think we can do in that particular scenario? What's the federal government thinking? Well, I think that that comes down to, you know, the Election Assistance Commission and the guidelines that they have on their websites for helping these, you know, small municipalities 
you know, get in line with what is needed. And it is important that they do get in line with uh, what is needed because it's honestly becoming, you know, with everything that's been in the news, it's becoming more and more prevalent and it's weighing on voters' minds. I mean, there was just a poll released earlier this week that said, you know, concerns over cybersecurity could lead to millions of Americans staying home in the next couple of elections. And it was primarily due to the fact that, you know, they're worried that the systems that are in place are just not secure. I mean, when is the last time? I mean, we we talk about this a lot within Mm -hmm. the private sector that people don't want to bank or people are worried about, you know, their mobile security or things like that when it comes to cybersecurity. But this, you know, the elections are fundamental to democracy. So if cybersecurity is threatening the fundamentals of democracy, the, the federal government is going to weigh in at some point. No, no. And I think that that's certainly true, uh, that, you know, we do really need to have absolute confidence in our elections. Uh, I certainly think some of that has been hindered by the way we talked about what happened in 2016, calling it election hacking when, well, yeah, the DNC was breached. It was you know election related, uh, but the voting systems were not directly targeted, but a lot of surveillance was taking place. And I think uh, many people are paying attention or many adversarial nations were paying attention of how the United States does elections and how potentially uh, locales can be impacted in their vote count. So it's uh, certainly uh, something important to consider. Uh, but you you make a point of the intangible impact, right? People, uh, voters are concerned uh, in part because of the way our, our national leaders are talking about what happened. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are legitimate concerns also. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely want to, you know, tell all of your listeners that may not, you know, that that hear us talk about this, and and it needs to be said, it's been said before, but it needs to be said again, that what happened in this past election, the election wasn't hacked. there, There was nothing, there was no evidence that anything has been changed. Uh, Then Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson said after the election that they saw no attacks whatsoever from DHS. And a lot of what we've seen was considered more of an information operations or, you know, an influencing Mm -hmm. campaign. So a lot of what you're seeing right now in the run up to the next, you know, 2018 and 2020 is sort of guarding against what, you know, possibly could happen, not what has happened in the past. Well, right. And and like I said, certainly, you know, we we saw some things probing. Uh, There was attempts to access voter records and the like, uh, various surveillance types of things that happened in the last week or so uh, of the election. Uh, So certainly I think we're going to see more of this. Uh, You know, as far as influence operations, I don't really know how many voters actually changed their minds based on what the Russians did. But the fact we're sitting here in July still talking about it, there's a lot of conversation of whether President Trump's legitimate because of Russia uh, and all of this still ongoing. Uh, It's hard to not say that uh, whatever the objectives, uh, you know, Russia tried to achieve, they certainly, uh, you know, achieved a great deal of them. Uh, So stay tuned. I want to change gears uh, right after this short break. Uh, We're going to still have Greg Owl on, so stay tuned for more. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamba. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambadick will be right back.
This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambinick. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. A uh, previous segment, we were talking with Greg Otto of Cyberscoop.com about uh, the Department of Homeland Security, what they're doing to secure our elections. Wanted to change gears uh, to another story uh, that was talked about uh, this past week on Cyberscoop.com. The potential exposure of millions of consumer uh, records from Verizon. Uh, many of you uh, may be Verizon customers yourself. Maybe your data was caught up in this. So wanted to bring Greg on to talk to us about what exactly happened here. Uh, so uh, let's get right into it. Uh, exactly uh, what kind of information was lost by Verizon, uh, you know, and how was it discovered? So that there's a key word there that you used, John. You said lost, and that is something that is being disputed. What this story is is that a third-party vendor for Verizon, a company called Nice Systems, which is an Israeli firm that provides call center and back office operations for Verizon, um, didn't configure an AWS server the right way. So there was a database that was publicly open to the internet. And a security researcher by the name of Chris Vickery, who works with a company called UpGuard, uh, discovered this public-facing database and found that it could affect as many as 14 million Verizon, U.S. Verizon customers. Now, that is a small percentage of general what is actually reported to be, you know, Verizon Wireless customers. I think Verizon Wireless has 114 million customers mm-hmm. in its wireless um, consumer network. Um, but it, it it shows that, you know, there is still some human error that, you know, happens when something is set up in the cloud. And we've seen this before. This yep. is actually a rash of stories over the past, I want to mm-hmm. say, month. Uh, we've seen these open S3 buckets from Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, we've seen this from recently from World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, and this was what was responsible for the leak of information in the Deep Root Analytics that exposed information on possibly every American voter. So right. this is an ongoing problem with the way that people are configuring their uh, Amazon Web Services um yeah, right, right. And basically, right, they're putting stored stuff online. I mean, data needs to be stored, but there's no authentication required. And this is just kind of an uproot of even, you know, larger things. You know, over the Christmas holidays, uh, there were a lot of uh, big data storages, Mongo and Hadoop, that had no passwords on there. People accessed it and deleted it, and there were shenanigans. There's a lot of Internet of Things stuff out there that are connecting to back-end databases. Those databases are exposed. There's lots of mobile apps. Uh, on your phones that need to store data, those are going back to the cloud with uh, huge databases that are also exposed, uh, you know, that it almost like we need another security acronym uh, that I call access with authentication, right? You know, it's just basic stuff. If you don't require a password or some sort of access control to access it, you don't really know uh, who's taking your stuff. And it's kind of security 101. Right, absolutely. I, I mean, and it's almost that, there, you, you don't know. I, we are looking at you know whether that this is a design flaw or something in in the way that an AWS bucket gets to be set up. I know Amazon Web Services does a fantastic job when it comes to security and when it comes to customer outreach, but for this to keep happening. It seems like there's there's something more there, and, and and we are you know trying to figure out if this is more just 
on the human air side, or is this you know a design flaw in the way that Amazon Web Services stands up S3 buckets? Yeah, well, I think part of it is just as kind of a pain to use S3 buckets. It's not intuitive for, for somebody who has a few, and uh, it reminds me to check to make sure my stuff is locked down. So, um, so you know, thank you for coming on, talking us to about uh, talking to us about it. Uh, you've been listening to Greg Otto, uh, CyberScoop.com, our digital partner. They have a lot of great news and content on their website. So go on down to uh, CyberSecurity, or excuse me, CyberScoop.com, uh, and check out news uh, that you need to know. Thank you for being with us today, Greg. Absolutely, thank you. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek. Again, a lot of great content there from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Go ahead, check them out. Uh, so a lot of good cybersecurity news there. So we're going to move on to our privacy feature, right? How you protect and control the information about yourself that's online, that's shared uh, with other entities. Your shopping preferences, brand preferences of what you buy, where you buy it, um, and all the information is trans. Uh, is transferred uh, in a consumer marketing, uh, you know, economy where advertisers are basically trying to target people most likely to buy their products. Earlier this year, President Trump uh, got rid of a rule enacted by uh, President Obama uh, as sort of a of a booby trap that created uh, laws that prohibited or I should say created regulations that prohibited how broadband companies, uh, your ISPs, Comcast, uh, uh, Verizon, or Fios, so on and so forth, could use information gleaned uh, about how you use Internet uh, as a way to uh, monetize or to give you discounted Internet. In essence, an idea was floated that if you were willing, you know, you would get cheap, potentially free Internet, uh, in exchange for them using your web surfing habits and whatever to uh, create marketing information. So a lot of uproar about this, in essence saying, hey, you know, Comcast is now going to sell what websites you go to. Uh, I think there was a GoFundMe out there trying to buy congressmen's web viewing habits. Uh, a little bit of sensationalist stuff because we already have economic relationships like this. There is a business model for it. If you use Facebook, if you use Twitter, if you use Gmail, you agree to let those companies use the data you put in those services to give advertisers access to you based on your preferences. That's just kind of the deal. They give you free service in exchange for uh, being able to give uh, abstracted marketing info, right? You know, no one can buy your Gmail email spool, but they can say, by the way, I want to target people in this town who have this, uh, these kind of preferences uh, to buy my new widget. So uh, that's really what this is about. Uh, now, the states have taken that uh, rule repeal from Trump, uh, and they want to put it in place and codify it in law, California being one of the prominent states about that, but certainly a lot of other states who want to protect your privacy and how that information is exchanged. Um, there's debates on both sides. I have mixed feelings. I'm a very strong privacy advocate, you know, but I'm not necessarily a big fan of, of regulations either. Regulations tend to be written by those with the best lobbyists, uh, and that's never going to be you or me because we don't have lobbyists. The big companies do. Um, that being said, certainly pay a lot of attention to this, uh, but really it's a reminder that the services you use on the Internet 
uh, even if ISPs don't get into the space of selling abstracted market uh, marketing information about you, uh, Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of these services that you sign up for for free, you know, are looking at information about you to sell marketing information. Almost every website you go to has ad trackers that try to get information. Oh, this person's interested on more liberal articles or conservative articles or interested in sports. And that's kind of the deal that most people will take when given the choice between free and convenient and privacy and inconvenient, they're going to take free and convenient, and most people would do that. And I bet you most people, if the deal was instead of paying Comcast $50 a month or Cox or whatever you may happen to have, getting free Internet uh, in exchange for letting them track you know, what websites you go to and the like, I think most people would take that also. I don't necessarily disagree with it. Or I don't necessarily agree with it, but free country, people are allowed – to make the decisions and trade their privacy. You just need to be aware of what the companies you're doing is doing with your data. Check out their privacy policies so that you can protect yourself and arm yourself because no one is going to protect your privacy. No one's going to look out for it except for you taking the effort because the deal is convenient and free or private and secure. So entirely up to you to take that choice, but you're going to have to take the effort and the energy and the time to figure out how to protect your privacy. I'm going to take a short break right here, uh, but stay tuned. We'll have more right after this break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambin. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambin. Bambinix back with the latest on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambinek. Joining us for this final segment of the hour is John Colbert. Uh, he is a member of the board of directors of Guidance Software, uh, used to be CEO of that company. It makes uh, computer forensic software that's used uh, pretty much by anybody who does uh, investigative work. It's the industry standard software. Has had a lot of uh, roles in uh, cybersecurity and a long bit of experience. So wanted to bring him on uh, to talk about uh, how the media talks about cybersecurity and reading between uh, the lines and headlines to knowing you know what's really true, what you need to know. So uh, thank you for joining us today, John. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. It's nice to be with you. Great, great. So in the last segment, uh, we talked a little bit uh, about the Verizon breach that happened this week. Uh, and uh, off the air, we talked about that a little bit where, you know, the headlines were, you know, a little uh, sensationalistic. You know, 14 million customers have had their data exposed. Uh, why don't you tell us, you know, what, what actually happened and how this is a pattern in how cybersecurity breaches are talked about? Well, I think it's it, it's an interesting thing when we see the media respond to a hack and, and the hack involves a business. The media are very quick to jump all over that business and, you know, try to, as, 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 as strongly as they can without saying it directly, accuse them of, of wrongdoing. And it kind of shows when you look at some of the reports because not only will they mention that the, the data was exposed, but they'll say things such as suggesting that 
Verizon took too long to respond. You know, they took nine days to to secure the server once they were made aware of it, and 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 statements like that. It's obvious that they're out to uh, push hard against Verizon and private companies like that. And maybe that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because we do want businesses to protect their data. But at the end of the day, we have to remember that it is that hackers are out there attacking companies at all times, and and we have to remember that. The hackers are really the cause of the problem. I mean, if you think about it, this didn't just happen because Verizon made a mistake. This was a partner of theirs, somebody whose right. network Verizon didn't have direct control over. And so it was a partner's network that had the failure, yet it was Verizon that is taking the hit. And then you look at the response of the media against a, a, a situation like this where it involved a business, and then you juxtapose that against something like when Hillary Clinton had an unclassified uh, or put classified data on an unclassified system in, in, in her garage off of the protected grid of the government, the response was entirely different. And so you, you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, what is the media's real objective when they report on issues like this and what mm-hmm. really happened? Mm-hmm. Well, no, and I think that that's fairly true. In this case, uh, you do make a good point, right? There, there's a difference between something being out there being weak and being discovered by a third party, in essence, a white hat hacker, uh, and another of taking, um, you know, a, of an actual breach where the bad guy gets data. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and look, when these situations happen, uh, it's not just the media that investigates these these matters. I mean, the media has fun uh, sensationalizing the situations and and getting some good reporting out of it. Uh, you know, but the government investigates companies when hacks like this happen. And mm-hmm. if the companies are found at fault, they're fined. Uh, sometimes they have to, you know, go on a, a type of probation where they have to take remediation steps over time and prove that they can secure data appropriately. And you know, they have to go through a lot of, uh, uh, of, of things that, that go on from government investigations following an event like this. And, uh, you know, businesses really do their best to not have to go through those problems because it is painful when you have a hack mm-hmm. like this, but they are going to happen. And, you know, I just find it distinctly interesting how the government responded, you know, responds to these type of things when a private company makes a hack versus how they responded to, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton when it was found that she had a, a mail server mm-hmm. in, in her garage, right? Because the government has classified networks and unclassified networks, and both are protected by professionals. And they have those networks put together. They have programs in place. They have procedures when classified information leaks from a classified network onto an unclassified network, and they have an immediate response system to go out and, and you know, do damage control and find all the instances of it and clean it up, and, and they have people that respond to that, and they watch all those networks and data yep. so they can protect mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And Hillary Clinton took, took her data and just removed it from that entire protection grid and put it in a situation where it could be hacked by anybody and everybody in a very unsecure environment, um, putting national security interests at risk. And the government's response to that was, well, it's not a big deal. It's just wow. Republicans making a big stink, right? And so it's, it's kind of, you know, if it's a private company and they make a mistake, there's a, uh, you know, a, a huge focus on whether or not they dotted every I and crossed every right. T, but then there's a different... Uh, you know, a different response when a politician is involved. 
Well, no, I think yeah, it goes to an expression: government is made of made up of people who are notably ungoverned, right? And we can go through big breaches in federal government, Office of Personnel Management, Edward Snowden, Harold Martin, Chelsea Manning, uh, Vault Seven, the Equation Group—all big breaches. And I think only OPM, after intense pressure, the head of that resigned. But there's never been any uh, real accountability for federal government breaches or, for that matter, state-level breaches. But, you know, we're talking about federal government. There, There is a different set of rules uh, that seems to be at play for, quite frankly, more sensitive information. I care about our national security secrets getting in the hands of the Russians or whatever national adversary more than I care about, uh, you know, potentially my phone number for my cell phone number being out there, which you could probably Google and get that anyway. So I I think you make a good point of, of, of you know, uh, taking a deep dive and trying to figure out exactly what's going on, uh, you know, what the agenda is there. Is it, is it ignorance or spin of going on and how these issues are being reported? Well, yeah, and you just have to, to, to wonder, you know, how seriously are we really taking security? I mean, I get it. When the media reports on an incident like this with Verizon, it makes it look, it makes it mm-hmm. appear as though our nation is really focused on security because, you know, here's a problem. We're making a really big deal out of it. Yet, as you mentioned, when national security secrets get exposed, um, it's an entirely different response. And we yeah. need to be, we as a nation, we really need to be deeply, deeply focused on securing our data and protecting our our national assets. And Mm -hmm. when something violates that, especially when it's a willful act of a a person, I don't care who they are, if it's a willful act to take data off of a classified network and put it into an unclassified situation, there should be repercussions for that person, period. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to set an example for everybody that says security is important in this country and we're going to start with our national security interests and we're going to secure them to the very best of our ability and then we're also going to ask our businesses in our country to do the same no and right now it's kind of the other way around you know we're putting the onus on the companies to to be perfect in all ways when it comes to security and we've given a pass to the to the government no, and I think you make make an excellent point right there, uh, and, and certainly it's it's something we're going to come back talking to and again and again. But we're uh, coming to the end of our show here, so wanted to thank you, John Colbert, for being on. Uh, you know, on the board of Guidance Software, a great forensic software uh, tool out there. So thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again to John Colbert. Some great information. Uh, looking through the headlines to see what really is newsworthy out there. A lot of uh, not great, most accurate or terribly accurate information talking about these cybersecurity issues. You know, whether it's not being uh, aware of it or some agenda. I know I talk to reporters all the time, uh, and they're still trying to come up to uh, speed. So, in, in some cases, it may just be uh, they don't uh, don't really know the right questions to ask. So, certainly be mindful of that uh, as you're reading some of the the news stories you see out there in cybersecurity. Coming to the end of our segment here, or the end of our show, hope you have a great weekend. Uh, Coming at you from AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering the Space Coast Space Coast and Orlando. To connect connect with us throughout the week to get information, uh, visit our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter, at CyberSecRadio, my personal Twitter account, at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, or email 
johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. And as always, uh, we podcast uh, the show. Uh, may have some interim podcasts out there for uh, information. You uh, take a look at Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bamanek with whatever podcasting software you take a look at. So until next week, hope you have a great week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And catch you next Saturday for Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek.